ICA presents Hello, welcome to this episode of the Architects of Communication Scholarship podcast series, a production of the ICA Podcast Network. I'm Ellen Wartella. Today, we're hearing from Dr. Shyam Sundar. Dr. Shyam Sundar is a James P. Jamiro Professor of Media Effects and co-director of the Media Effects Research Laboratory at Penn State University. He is also the director of the Center for Socially Responsible Artificial Intelligence. With his interdisciplinary knowledge of psychology, computer science, and engineering, Dr. Sundar offers a unique perspective on topics revolving around interactive media, artificial intelligence, fake news, and the future of human-computer relationships. He is an ICA fellow and a former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Computer-Mediated Communication. Our interviewer today is Saraswathi Balor, an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Connecticut where she studies the effects of interactive media and has worked alongside Dr. Sundar during her graduate studies at Penn State University. Here's Saraswati. Hello and welcome to the Architects of Communication Scholarship podcast. I am Saraswati Bellur. It's my pleasure and honor to be talking with Dr. Sundar today. Thank you for doing this. I look forward to our conversation. Let's begin with your academic background, which has been eclectic. You did your undergraduate degree in engineering back in India, even as you pursued a side hustle as a journalist working for top newspapers. Your initial academic journey here in the US straddled both the domains of psychology and communication, and eventually you bring them all together. In a sense, your scholarship reflects this highly interdisciplinary training. Given this diverse background, what led you to become a communication scholar? I started out as a student of engineering in my undergraduate uh, years. And while my engineering school happened during the mornings, I was a journalist at night. I was in the newspaper offices, taking assignments, going out and reporting and bringing back stories to print. In those days, my interests around media and journalism crystallized into an interest in audiences and how they might be perceiving what we put out in our newspapers. Ultimately, I've always been really interested in how people process mediated communications. So while the focus of much of my current work is communication technology, my ultimate goal in this work has always been to discover how aspects of the technology affect the way people perceive content conveyed via those technologies. For example, I study the effects of interactive media or interactivity, a concept that you and I have worked on quite a bit. The dependent variables of some of these research is always about how people perceive that content, how that content shapes their worldview. A lot of my work has also been in the area of human-computer interaction, but that area, which is called HCI, is really a means to an end. And the end is really that I'm focused on is effectiveness of communication. Likewise, another area of interest for me, and in fact, my minor in my doctoral studies is psychology which helps us understand the human mind. But in my work, it is again a means to an end, to better understand how user psychology intersects with technology to affect communication. Ultimately, it's all about how people are affected by uh, the communication technology and how it affects the nature of their communications. Therefore, it's an obvious choice for me to be in this field and no other field. The connection between the dots existed and now 
they're all coming together in the work that you do. When you entered this field, who were your mentors and how did they shape your academic experiences? I must say Dolph Zillman, during my master's studies at the University of Alabama, really was the first mentor in this academic journey, I would say. He turned me on to this whole area of media effects. I interpreted almost everything in terms of psychological effects. Even the tech research that I do about user experience or social responses or all the psychology research that I was exposed to by the likes of Amos Tversky, Al Bandura, David Rummelhart, Bob Zions, Lee Ross, and Mark Lepper, whose classes I had the privilege of taking during my doctoral studies at Stanford. In my doctoral work, my doctoral advisor at Stanford, Cliff Nass, was highly, highly instrumental in shaping my research interests in the psychology of technology per se. My doctoral committee members, uh, Byron Reeves, Steve Chafee, and Don Roberts were quite instrumental in helping me think about technological phenomena in conceptual terms and propose research frameworks that go beyond one study and generate more study ideas. That's amazing, standing on the shoulder of many giants. When you started your work in the area of communication technologies, theories and models that examine technology-based processes did not exist. In fact, one of your major contributions to the field has been to put the medium square and center. Specifically, you have carved out a theoretical niche in the form of an affordance-based approach, building many models and theories, such as the interactivity effects model, the main model, time model, and extending it all the way to the field of AI more recently. So as a theorist, what are some issues and challenges that you have faced when it comes to theory building in a discipline that is continuously evolving? This is a very interesting and important question because, as you know, technology changes all the time. If you build a theory around a given technology, then it will be outdated because the technology is going to be outdated. It's very important for technology theorists to be thinking about technology in conceptual terms rather than in operational terms that are specific to one technology, and also in terms of building abstractions key challenge of doing tech research in calm is that you know, everyone focuses on content that is usually piped through a particular platform and then they associate that platform with that particular content. They are focused on the content rather than appreciating the role, the overarching role of technological affordances. I've always tried to champion the cause of technological effects and user psychology by building several disciplines, most especially communication psychology and computer science. In doing so, I've, over the years, delineated two broad types of technological effects. The first has to do with the effects of interface cues, which was published 13 years ago in the form of main model that you refer to. And the second, to the effects of user actions on the interface. What happens when users actually act on the interface instead of just being cued by the interface? Here, the focus has been on affordances like interactivity and customization. The idea is that such actions will have psychological effects and what people do or how the audience members or users, as we call them, interact with the media can change the nature of the communication itself and all the effects of that communication. These effects are no longer simply a, an effect of the features, but are a direct effect of the user actions on the interface. It's a culmination of different models that I've been working with and proposed in the preceding 20 years. 
Most social scientists today are inundated with data, thanks to big data and computational approaches toward understanding various social phenomena. Our ability to make sense of this data is far outpaced by the sheer volume of data available. How do you see the field rising up to this challenge where our existing theories may not be sufficient to explain what's going on? This is a very current question and very important one. The developments in computational aspects have been much more profound than they even had the ability to anticipate. We are now at a stage where we are able to get more data about more specific things that people do with media than our theories envisioned. Our theories from the last 50, 70 years could even think about. As a result, we have a big hammer in our hand, but we only see small nails. Sometimes we use the hammer to hit those small nails expending a lot of effort to get at a minor point. We have this elaborate methodological toolkit that we deploy to make a very minor theoretical point. And so it, it ends up not being so parsimonious. But when you think about it in terms of the development of the field and evolution of scholarship, our methods have not just caught up to our theories, but really surpassed them. We are now able to see more than we know what we are looking for. It's like we have a really powerful microscope. We can not only describe what we are seeing, and we still cannot make sense of all the things that are going on in that Petri dish because there are so many unknown organisms or unknown factors that are playing a role, but have not been accounted for by our current theories. That is why we need more homegrown theories that can catch up to the reality that we are able to capture with these advanced methods and help us make sense of what we are seeing with new powerful computational approaches. I think you make an excellent point there. And I really like the microscope analogy because yes, we have a lot of things that we're looking at, but if we don't have the generative frameworks and particular ways of thinking about that new data, it's not going to be as relevant or as meaningful. The questions that we ask have to rise up to the challenges that we face in terms of data. We first have to describe what we see so that the theorists can get an understanding of what is it that we are able to see with these tools before we can even begin to think about them theoretically. That's why you find a lot of the big data work tends to be on the descriptive side. This is part of the evolution of this type of research is it'll take a while before it becomes more theoretically meaningful. So the answers we find are only as good as the questions we ask and it's time for asking the right questions. Right, no amount of data, no amount of granular data is going to give us insights if the questions are not geared toward that level of data, yeah. So you have deep roots in the field of psychology and media effects, and that's reflected in the experimental approach that you employ in most of your studies. However, your research has also been widely interdisciplinary, combining psychology, communication, computer science, human-computer interaction, and more. Has this changed your methodological leanings and the type of research that you see emerging in the field right now? I think we are all influenced by the different fields and audiences to which we cater to in a way. When we submit our research to these different interdisciplinary venues, we have to invariably alter the way we frame our work and the way we even study some of the phenomena of interest to these different communities. I would say that the more core scientific approach of hypothesis-driven research that we pursue in psychology and in communication, especially in my subfield of media effects, will need to undergo a transformation when I submit to, let's say, HCI in the field of human-computer interaction, which is dominated by designers and engineers from the industry. 
for them, uh, the hypothesis-driven research is not quite as appealing. It doesn't resonate with them as, uh, let's say, a problem-solving approach. I end up having to frame my research in terms of what is the problem here and how do we solve this problem? A lot of the communication questions are not based on some theory that is being tested, which is the theory hypothesis-driven approach, but rather a problem has to be identified with the current human media equation and then see if we can come up with some clever ways to solve that problem using research. Looking at questions like, why do we fall for fake news? Do we trust machines too much? How can we build better trust and credibility in our online interaction, which have a strong practical implication in uh, how they are examined? Looking forward, what do you think are some of the big societal challenges where communication scholarship can make a major contribution? In general, I think the question itself sets up the response. When you talk about why do we fall for fake news? This has become, I think, a very big issue just in the last five or so years. It gets at the heart of communication in my mind because communication, especially mediated communication, is nothing if it's not credible. Historically, media entities have risen and fallen based on the degree of credibility that they have with their audiences. Restoring information credibility by addressing the scourge of misinformation, I think, is one of the biggest challenges and also an opportunity for our field, for communication scholars, and to come up with different ways in which we can tackle this problem of fake news or false information that is polluting the information environment. So it's not just about fake news reducing our trust in these institutions, but it's also about us not being able to participate effectively in government, in politics, in our civic duties and so forth, because we don't know how to differentiate between fake and real. Another big societal challenge I see is with the arrival of artificial intelligence. You mentioned in your question about do we trust machines too much? The answer is yes. I've given talks about this uh, for several years now. And the reason this topic has even come up is because machines have commanded a whole lot of respect from users for a long time now, because machines are considered infallible. They, they command a lot of respect. They have high levels of credibility to begin with. AI, machines are taking on much more agency. And as a result, they are undermining the agency of the user. While we appreciate the convenience that machines offer, we appreciate the personalization that they offer, we are also very often scared by the surveillance aspects, by how much they invade our privacy and how much control they might take away from us. I think the future lies in good ways to build frameworks for effective collaborative work between humans and AI, how we can move forward where both machines and humans co-construct reality by sharing agency rather than usurping or giving up agency. We have seen where you have mentored hundreds of students, aspiring scholars and media practitioners, and having been a direct beneficiary of Shams Lab Group at Penn State, I can attest to how a collaborative research and mentoring approach can work wonders. From your experience of running this lab group so successfully for many years now, what do you think are some of the main qualities that contribute to a successful mentorship, both for the mentor and the mentee? Lab group is one of those things that I acquired from another field, from the engineering and human-computer interaction domains where I'm active in. 
right around the time that you joined Penn State and became my advisee, I decided to make the switch from an apprentice model to a lab group approach where all my advisees work together and they be meet every week, once a week, uh, all 12 months actually, with some breaks here and there, as you know. The, the reason we do this is to organize ourselves. I like to joke sometimes that lab group is to research what mafia is to crime. It's organized. It's a good way to have public accountability and organize all our research where everybody is responsible for some aspect of the lab group's work. It's also a committee of peers. That's what the lab group does is bring together people who are all in the same boat. Grad school is kind of lonely enterprise as it is. And I feel like having a lab group provides a much needed sense of community and peer consultation that goes on and the mutual learning that comes from it. Lab group mentality itself is something that I try to inculcate in my students. I think it does take a village to raise and groom a scholar. As you mentioned, just the joy of learning together and exploring things together and witnessing the growth that happens both at an individual level and collective level is something amazing. Since this podcast series is titled Architects of Communication Scholarship, what would you say you've built? I don't know if I've built anything specifically, but I'd like to think of myself as a champion for technology effects. I've been championing the cause of technological effects and user psychology, and also championing interdisciplinary work or multidisciplinary work, bringing several disciplines, most especially communication psychology and computer science into the fold and trying to you know, understand them together. As I said before, my main work has been in the area of the effects of technology. The first type of effects that I spent a good deal of early part of my career was on the effects of interface cues which was published some 15 years ago in the form of a main model. The second area pertains to the effects of user actions on the interface with a focus on interactivity and customization. The idea is that such actions have psychological effects, what people do or how the audience members or users, as we call them, interact with the media can change the nature of communication itself and all the effects of that communication. These effects are a direct result of user actions on the interface and not simply those of cues on the interface. I pull them all together under the theory of interactive media effects or time. It's a culmination of different models that I've been working on. Some of those models are interactivity effects model, the agency model of customization, and the motivational technology model of which you are a co-author. The motivational technology model is really premised on self-determination theory to explain how people can be motivated to engage with technologies, especially that have pro-social outcomes like health apps, whereas the agency model of customization is the psychological effect that happens when you customize your media environment uh, or when you create or curate content, which is increasingly possible with modern social media. And the interactivity effects model has to do with delineating the different kinds of interactivity that we have and typologizing. So this is a typology that I came up with. Even before this, during my PhD dissertation days, I came up with the typology of online sources. For me, the confusing multiplicity of sources that came about with the arrival of the World Wide Web, where we could not tell if the source was a newspaper or it was another person, or if it was other people on the internet who are serving as sources of news, for me, that presented a big challenge for the reader because the reader cannot factor source into their evaluation of stories. 
the source signal was becoming much more muddied than it was with television or newspapers. I needed to figure out a strategy to typologize. So that's really what I did for my dissertation. And then more recently, I've come up with uh, different typologies of uses and gratifications so that they can be applied to modern media. In many ways, I see myself as uh, initially a conceptualizer. I've been conceptualizing uh, things and putting them in different buckets. That's what the work of typology is and building taxonomies. Then I graduated to building models and then graduated then to building a theory, the theory of interactive media effects. Then that theory has been thankfully quite generative in that I've been able to apply it to, for example, uh, AI resulting in the human AI interaction model, which is what we call the high time. That's the study of human AI interaction from the perspective of the theory of interactive media effects. These, I would say broadly, are my contributions to the field. Yeah, it's amazing. You've added several tools to the theoretical toolkit that has empowered the whole scope of research that a lot of communication technology researchers engage in. As we wrap up this wonderful conversation here, what advice would you give to students and young scholars about their careers and life in academia in general? The one thing that I tell all my students and the one thing I look for when I vet candidates for positions in my lab or even positions at our university I think a key hallmark of a good academic is intellectual curiosity, that they are driven by the curiosity to dig in and have the intellectual stamina to keep digging in and pursuing a particular question with great depth and rigor. You'll see that when a scholar presents their work, they are very programmatic in the way they have approached the different studies. They're all threading a needle, if you will, pointing toward a grand question of great intellectual merit and societal benefit, rather than being opportunistic, doing one study here, one study there, that really is not cobbled together well. Another key characteristic for me is uh, passion. I think this work is not conventionally rewarded. If you get into this business, you need to be driven by some intrinsic motivation and just the joy of doing this. You have to be passionate about your area of research. And I think that is something that we are seeing an upsurge in, especially now we have so many public scholars and activist scholars who are driven by particular uh, ideas to, about changing the way the world works, changing the role of communication. I think we are at the cusp of a big paradigm shift in the way we think about the role of communication in society. And I think that's, for me, a signal of passion more than anything else. I think finally, it's very important for young scholars to have fun doing it. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this now. I'm now in my 27th year as a professor, and I pretty much do what I did when I first came is conduct studies, work with my grad students, publish them. I wouldn't be doing this if it were not fun. Finding that fun, I think, is an important aspect of being a successful scholar. Wonderful, Sham. Intellectual curiosity, intellectual stamina, finding your passion and having fun. I think those are some excellent takeaways. As always, it's been a pleasure, Sham, chatting with you. I learned so much. I'm inspired. And on behalf of everyone listening to this ICA podcast and the communication community, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you, Saras, for being such a great mentee and for doing a wonderful job of asking me all the right questions and 
for all your insights over the years as well. I really enjoyed uh, working with you and I certainly enjoyed this chat that we had today. Thank you, Sean. Architects of Communication Scholarship is a production of the International Communication Association Podcast Network. This series is sponsored by the School of Communication at Hong Kong Baptist University. Our producer is Bennett Pack. Our executive producer is Devonte Brown. The theme music is by Humans Win. For more information about our participants on this episode, as well as our sponsor, be sure to check the episode description. Thanks for listening.